0: We want RUF to be a safe place regardless of where you find yourself spiritually. Some of, you, some of you may consider yourself spiritual. Others of you may consider yourself skeptical. And regardless of where you are um, on that issue, we're glad that you're here. Because what we do each week at RUF is we try to explore the truth claims of Christianity together. And the way that we do that is that we actually put our face in the text of the Bible to look at it. In this particular semester, we are looking at the book of Judges. And it's an Old Testament book. And the book of Judges is, um, sorry, multitasking. Judges is a series of true stories that are written uh, to God's people with the intent of showing God's people God's grace and therefore to call them to faith and obedience. So with that in mind, let me read this passage from Judges chapter 3, verse 7 through 11, and uh, we'll read it together and then consider it together. This is God's word from Judges chapter 3. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushon rishathaim king of Aram Naharaim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The spirit of the Lord came upon him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushon rishathaim king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. This is God's word for us tonight. If you would, pray with me before we consider it together, okay? So let's pray. Father, we uh, need you to be our teacher now in these moments. We need to hear from you tonight, not hear from Matt Howell. So would you come and would you be our teacher? Uh, I pray that you would do so by softening our hearts and for opening up our ears to understand and to really see that which is true and beautiful and good. And that's our prayer, and we'd ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Samuel Johnson was a British writer in the 18th century. And he kept a diary uh, that I want to read you a few selected readings from. This is a diary entry about his attempts to get up early in the morning to pray. And you're going to get the impression that Samuel Johnson was not a morning person. 1738... He writes, O Lord, enable me to redeem the time which I have spent in sloth, which means sleeping in. 1757, 19 years later, O mighty God, enable me to shake off sloth and redeem the time that's been spent in idleness and sin. 1764, my purpose is from this time on to avoid idleness and to rise early. The next year, 1765, I purpose to rise at eight because though I shall not rise early, it will be much earlier than I now rise, for I often lie till two. (laughs) Sounds like some of y'all. 1769, I am not yet in a state to form any resolutions. I purpose and hope to rise early in the morning by eight and then by degrees at six. 1775, when I look look back upon resolutions and improvement which have year after year been made and have been broken, why do I yet try to resolve again? But then he resolves again to rise at eight. 1781, the last entry, 43 years after the first entry and only three years before his death. Here's what he writes. "'I will not despair, but help me, help me, oh my God.'" And he vows to rise at 8 o'clock or sooner. (laughs) Now you know what that's like, right? You know what it's like to say, I want to change something about me and yet it feels impossible. I want to change and yet it just feels like I take two steps forward, three steps back. It's, It's just not working. So how do we change? Because the reality is everybody in this room wants to change. And here's how I know that this is true. Because many of you, have just made a long list of New Year's resolutions. How are those going by the way? <laughs> Three weeks in or a month in now. I know that you want to change also because a lot of you dedicate lots of time to training and practicing sports <laughs> or music or video games to be better and faster, stronger. I know that you want to change because a lot of you work really hard on your grades and you study really hard because you want to get good grades so that some of you can get into a good grad program. I know you want to change because a lot of you feel regret and guilt and shame. And all of those feelings are feelings of, I wish that there was something different about me or different about my story. I know that you want to change because uh, a lot of you work out all the time. You're unhappy with the body that you have. You wish it was smaller, bigger, stronger, whatever. Uh, I know that you want to change because Uh, A lot of you simply just don't like yourself and wish that you yourself were just different, a different person. And I know that you want to change because I know for a lot of you, that's the reason why you're here at RUF tonight, is that you're here to connect with God, you're here to learn, you want to grow, you want to change, you want to be different. And so the question is, okay, how then? How do we actually change? How do we experience deep, lasting, radical, permanent change? And not just superficial, change of, I want to change this bad habit. But how do, you, how do we experience the deep, personal, inside-your-heart change, where your insides, what you love, what you desire, is actually different? Well, this passage um, is going to show us that if you want to experience deep change, Christian change, then you have to understand four things. You have to understand the priority of memory, the purpose of suffering, The power of repentance and the person of Jesus. Four Ps, all crammed right here. The priority of memory, the purpose of suffering, the power of repentance, and the person of Jesus. Let's go. What's the first one? The priority of memory. Last week we said that in the book of Judges, if you were here, just a reminder, that there's this series of cycles that happen over and over and over all throughout the book. And we said that this cycle has four different elements to it. There's sin, and then it leads to slavery, which leads them to supplication, and then salvation. And really you can see all four of these elements of the cycle in this particular story. So look at it. Uh, The people sin against God in verse 7. God hands them over to be enslaved by foreign nations in verse 8. They cry out to God, which is what supplication means, in verse 9. And then God saves them in verse 9 through 11. Four elements right here in this little story. But let's look at this first element of when they sin and take maybe a closer look at that. Let me read verse 7. It says, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. Now, I talked about this a little bit briefly last week, but when it says that the people of Israel forgot about God, this doesn't mean that they forgot about him in, a, in an intellectual way. It, it doesn't mean that they forgot about God. It just means that they, they stopped caring about God. What was true to their, you know, in their heads was not real to their hearts. It hadn't grabbed their hearts. It's kind of like my relationship with the Pythagorean theorem. You know, A squared plus B squared equals C squared. I believe that that's true. I intellectually sign off on that. I I agree. I don't really think about that throughout my day. It doesn't really capture my heart. I really, I just kind of forget about it. It doesn't. It doesn't really move me. And that's really what's going on with the situation here. You know, it's interesting, in the New Testament, in Second Peter chapter 1, Peter's writing to a church, a group of Christians, and he's calling them to grow, he's calling them to change, and he says, okay, y'all need to work on your kindness, and your patience, and your self-control, and your love for each other, and then it's really interesting, he starts talking about those people that, that uh, aren't doing that that are exhibiting a lack of self-control, a lack of love, a lack of patience with each other. And what he says to them is really fascinating. He doesn't say to them, okay, y'all need to try harder. What he says is you need to remember better In chapter 1, verse 9, let me just read it to you. Uh, Here's what he says. If anyone does not have them, meaning these qualities of being kind-hearted and uh, self-control and all that, if if he does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from past sins. Here's what he's saying. He's saying the reason why you keep going back to the sin that you keep going back to is because you've forgotten what is true. You've forgotten that the gospel is true. The reason why you sin and the way that you sin in your particular situations is because you have forgotten that the gospel is true. And so you see that there's a connection between your memory and your life. When the memory goes and you forget what is true, then your life starts spinning out of control. Example from my life. When I was in college, uh, me and a group of folks went to the beach for a summer. And when you first get to the beach, you know, if you're going to be there for an extended amount of time, you go to the grocery store and you get a bunch of stuff. And I bought these two really big, like, jugs of Gatorade, like the big kind. Not the little mini ones you get like at the you know, 7-Eleven or whatever. These are like the big jugs. I got two of them, brought it home. We're in, you know, back in our like hotel room or whatever and I didn't have anywhere else to put the Gatorade so I just put, I put it in my closet because we didn't have storage space. And so we go out and we're hanging out on the beach all day long. And after we've done, you know, been tooling around on the beach, we come back to the room and I was with one of my friends and because he didn't see the Gatorade, he asked me, he was like, dude, did you, did you already drink all that Gatorade? This is, this is unbelievably stupid, but I lied. <laughs> I said yes. I said yeah, like yeah, I, I totally like, drank it all. Now why would I lie about something so stupid about drinking Gatorade, drinking two things of Gatorade? Here's why. Because in that moment I thought that if if he thought that I had drank in those two things, that, that he would have been impressed by that. He, he would have thought that that was cool. That I would, I would have gained his approval of this massive Gatorade chugging champion guy. But the, re- the reality is, is that in that moment, I was forgetting that the gospel was true. Because if in that moment I believed, okay, I have the king of the universe's approval because of what he has done for me in Jesus, I I wouldn't have had to lie. I I wouldn't have had to try and get his approval because I have God's approval. So you see the connection. I had forgotten the gospel in that moment. Whenever you sin in the ways that you sin, whenever you lie, whenever you steal, whenever you cheat, whenever you do whatever it is that you do, and whatever it is that I, I you know when I do, it's because we have forgotten that the gospel is true. So how can we remember? How can we remember that the gospel is true? I want to be very practical here before we move on to the second point. Here's some very practical, tangible ways that you can keep remembering that the gospel is true and keep it at the forefront of your head. One thing that you can do is that you can go to a church that preaches the gospel every single week. Every single week. You know, Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, 95 Theses guy, uh, he had somebody in his church come up to him after church service was over, and they said, okay, Martin, when are you going to stop preaching the gospel and move on to something else? And he said, I'll start preaching about something else when you and I st- start, stop forgetting it every single week. We go out and we forget that the gospel is true and we need to come back and we need to hear it again. And we need to believe it again. So go to a church that preaches the gospel every single week. And I think you should go to a church that actually celebrates the Lord's Supper often. Because what did Jesus say? He, said, he instituted this memorial to do this in remembrance of me. So that you're constantly seeing and connecting the dots and remembering. Another thing that you should do is to actually read your Bible. You know, I don't say that usually a lot up front, but maybe I should more. Christians, are you actually reading your Bible? And not reading it just to like check off just for information, but actually reading it in a way that, that you're meditating on it and marinating in it so that, so that the gospel staying at the forefront of your mind and not just reading it, closing it, and then you just kind of forget what you read. Another thing that you can do is to sign up for a community group. This is why we have community groups in RUF, is so that you, you don't have to do this thing by yourself, but that you have other people constantly reminding you week in and week out, okay, the gospel is true, keep going, keep going, keep believing, keep repenting, keep believing. These are tangible, practical things that you can do to keep remembering. Because as soon as you forget, and as soon as I forget, that's when when the trouble starts. So that's the first thing, the priority of memory. If you want to experience deep, radical change, you have to understand the priority of memory. And here's the second thing. You have to understand the purpose of suffering. The people of Israel in this story, they forget about God, they start worshiping these false gods, and look at what happens in verse 8. It's it's very interesting. Verse 8, "The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan-Rishathaim, king of Aram, to whom the Israelites were subject for 8 years." It says that God sells his own people into the hands of this dude named Cushan-Rishathaim which in Hebrew literally means Kushan double wickedness, which implies God just sold his people over to this guy that's very harsh, very oppressive, very cruel in the way that he treats these Israelite slaves now. And here's what's inter- interesting, is that God does this. God brings about this misery in the life of his people. And I know some of you go, okay, well, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, I thought God was a God of love. I mean, here he is being angry and he's making life miserable for his own people. See, this is why I only worship. This is why I worship the God of the New Testament because He's a God of love and grace. And the God of the Old Testament is this God of anger and He makes everything, everybody miserable. Okay, hold off before you jump to that conclusion, because could it not be possible that God brings certain types of suffering into your life actually for your better, for your good? Could it not be possible that God orchestrates it so that suffering happens in your life to actually make you change and to make you better, to make you whole? According to the Bible, the answer is yes, absolutely. God brings suffering into your life and into my life to actually break you, to to, to enable you to see the things that you're worshiping which are killing you and and to give you an opportunity to come back to him. Suffering is actually a gift from God as a good thing to make you whole, to make you change, to make you... (laughs) better. Now I heard this story from a pastor friend of mine named Brian Habig and he heard the story from one of his friends who lived in Mississippi, the small out of you know, place in the middle of nowhere Mississippi where really it's like this town which just has like a stop sign in it. This is the extent of this small town in Mississippi and you would think that this story that I'm about to tell you took place like 200 years ago but it took place 20 years ago and it's a true story. There's these two women that grew up in this really small town of Mississippi. And they became close friends, lifelong friends. But one of them grew up and moved away from this small town and became a nun, Catholic nun. And uh, the, the, the friend that stayed in this small town of Mississippi uh, became very sick, very ill. And so uh, she was at home and so she sent word to her Catholic nun friend to come and to visit her and to be with her and to take care of her. So this Catholic nun comes to her friend's house, and uh, she knocks on the door, she's very sick inside, and the maid answers the door. And when the maid sees the nun, she gets these like enormous, freaked out eyes. And so the nun says, hey, I'm, I'm a friend of you know so and so inside, and I'm here to see her. And the um, maid goes, oh, she's, she's doing fine, she's doing okay, you don't, you don't need to see her. And the nun goes, no, I, she sent word to me. I've heard that she's sick, and so I, I've, I've, I've come here to help her. And the maid goes, no, she's, she's getting better. She's doing all right. Like, cool. And then the maid takes her apron, steps out in front of the front porch, and goes, shoo, shoo. And is shooing away this this nun. Bizarre. They find out after the fact that what had happened was that this maid had never seen a nun before. And she thought that the nun was the angel of death (laughs) coming to take her employer. Here is this nun, here is this nun, who is a friend coming to help her other friend in in her time of need. And yet this maid sees her as a threat. This this person is, is actually coming to bring harm, not to bring good. God sends suffering into your life and into my life all the time. And if you are a Christian, when you experience and when you see that suffering, that hardship coming to you, it's really easy to look at that and say, that has been sent to harm me. That has been sent to kill me. God has, been, God has sent this to, do, to hurt me when actually it has been sent as a friend in your time of need. Now, how does that make sense? How does, how does suffering actually help you? How does suffering make you better? How does, how, how does suffering work for your good? Okay, well, think about it. If, if you have two friends, and, and one friend has never experienced anything hard, they've, they've been raised with a silver spoon, they're, they're spoiled, they never had, had anything hard happen to them, and you have one friend that has really been to hell and back, who's been broken, who, who has really experienced deep suffering, who would you want to take advice from? Who do you think is more wise, more grounded, more, more has, has a richer faith? Who do you think is more in touch with reality? The school that God takes you through to give you faith, to give you patience, to give, to give you a weightiness to your personhood, the school that he takes you through is the school of suffering. Now, I know that that can sound crazy to feel like, God's, God's harming me, but, but I know that he's actually helping me. But it, it's, kind of like, um, it's kind of like when you take a kid to the doctor and you give him a shot. It's really painful for the kid, but yet it's for his good. And that's how suffering actually functions in our life. And so if you identify yourself as a Christian, I have to ask you, when you experience hard things and life really does feel like it's, the wheels are coming off, do you repel from God and throw up your middle finger at him and want nothing to do with him and get upset get upset? Or do you actually lean into the suffering and say, okay, based off of what I know about God and his commitment to me, I know that this can't be for my bad. He's actually using this in some way I don't understand for my good. Do you evaluate God through the lens of your circumstances? Or do you evaluate your circumstances through the lens of God? That's the question. Do you evaluate your circumstances through the lens of God? Or do you evaluate and critique him based off of your circumstances? We could talk all night about this, and that's all we can really say. The purpose of suffering. It's for your good, it's for your change. So if you want to experience change, you need to understand the priority of memory, the purpose of suffering, and here's the third thing. The power of repentance. It says in verse 9 that they cried out to the Lord. Now, every commentary that I read says they weren't crying out to the Lord as, as a cry of repentance because they hated their sin. They were crying out because they didn't like their circumstances. It was painful. It was, it was uncomfortable for them. So they're crying out, we want to keep our sin, actually, but we don't like the pain that it's causing. You know, what's crazy about the story is that God actually responds to that. He's actually moved by the fact that they are in pain. You know, but he doesn't always respond. As, as this kind of story of Judges goes on and on and on, by the time you get to chapter 10, God looks at them and they cry out to him and he says, No, I'm not going to do it anymore. Because you're not repenting of your sin. You're just, you just don't want, you don't like your circumstances. Which raises the question: okay, then what is real repentance? What is true repentance? Repentance is an ongoing sorrow for your sin. It's an ongoing sorrow. For your sin. Notice I said ongoing. It isn't just the entrance to the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Again, another reference to Martin Luther. Shout out to my man, Marty. He, uh, when he put up the, the, the 95 Theses, if you've ever read those, which I would recommend you do, you can find them online. They're unbelievably fascinating. The first thesis of the 95 is this He says, When our Lord and Master said, repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Here's what he means. Followers of Jesus don't just repent once. It is the lifestyle of Christians to repent all throughout your day. So here's what it could look like for me. Just use me as an example. Here's what would be a good day of repentance for me. I get up in the morning, uh, drive to work, and usually what happens is I get angry on my way to work because... It's a one-lane road, and cars, you can't get around, and they're too slow, and it makes me angry. So in the car, in that moment, I could repent of my anger. God, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm an angry person. I'm impatient. So I repent of my sin to God, and then I'm assured that God actually forgives me because of the cross. So then I get to campus, and I meet with a student, and... Uh, I can get impatient with this particular student, let's just say, because they're not, they're not getting it. They're, they're not growing in the way that I think that they should grow, and so I get impatient and frustrated with this particular student. Catch myself, uh, repent. God, I'm sorry I'm, I'm impatient. I don't trust that you're at work. And then I'm assured afresh that God actually forgives me because of the cross. So then I I, meet with another student and let's say this student is sharing some very hard things with me and instead of just hurting with them and crying with them and praying with them, I start developing strategies and here's how to fix your problem, here's how to fix your life and I catch myself and okay, repent, I'm I'm a control freak, I don't trust you, I don't don't have faith in you, I I have a Messiah complex, I think I can fix everybody, repent of that and then I'm assured afresh that God actually forgives me and gives grace because of the cross. And then uh, I go back to my office and work extra hard on my sermon, work really hard on my sermon, not because I love Jesus and because I love y'all, but because I'm driven by fear of failure. Then I catch myself, repent of my lack of trust and and my fear of failure, and then I'm assured afresh that God forgives me because of the cross. And this this is all before lunchtime. And I haven't yet repented of my pride or of my lust or of my greed or of my unkindness to my family, my unkindness to students. That's what repent, That's what the Christian life looks like. That's what holiness actually begins to look like, is that as you enter into this cycle, this rhythm of repentance, at the end of one day, your sin seems massive, and so does your Savior. Your sin becomes bigger and bigger as you become aware of it. it not, not that you're sinning more and more, but you're becoming more and more aware of it, and, and Jesus is becoming more and more big to you. Holiness actually feels a lot more like brokenness. Holiness actually feels and, and, and looks a lot more like brokenness. The more holy you become, the less holy you feel. You know, Christians, we get this silly idea that Christian maturity is getting to a place where you need Jesus less. I'm growing, I'm getting to a point where I need him less. And it's actually the exact opposite. Christian maturity is you getting to a point where you see that you actually need him more. More. And so here's the question. Are you repenting? Are you you entering into this rhythm, this ongoing rhythm of of identifying and naming and owning your junk and repenting of it? Are you even aware of stuff that you could be repenting of? You know, the Puritan said that if you ever feel out of touch with God, find something to repent of. Because that will draw you closer into his heart. Now, if you're a Pharisee, if you're just a good, moralistic, religious person, that doesn't make sense to you. Because you'll think, if I bring God my sin, he, he's going to want nothing to do with me. He's going to be repelled. It's going to push him away, not draw him closer. And that's because you're relating to him based off of your performance. And you feel like your sin can jeopardize your relationship with him. But if you're a, if you're a Christian, then when you repent of your sin and you bring it before him, and you take it to the cross you're assured of his forgiveness, that's what draws you closer to him, and that's what draws him closer to you. So are you repenting? Are you aware of stuff to repent of? And if you think, okay, I can't think of anything to repent of, that's a dangerous place to be. And my advice to you would be to start with repenting of the fact that you don't think you have anything to repent of. Start there and let God take, let the Holy Spirit show you where else you can repent. That's the power of repentance, because the more and more that you repent, the more humbled and crushed into the dirt you are, and yet more affirmed and encouraged you are at the same time. Here's the last thing. If we want to change, we've got, we, we got to understand the, the priority of memory, the purpose of suffering, the power of repentance, and purposefully, powerfully, the person of Jesus. Where do we see Jesus in this story? Well, look back, at the, look back at the text, okay? The people of Israel have come to the end of themselves and they cry out for somebody outside of themselves to save them. And look at verse 9. It says that God raises up a deliverer. Now, that word deliverer in Hebrew is the Hebrew word Yeshua, which just really means Savior. That's just the Hebrew word for Savior, And so, this Yeshua type savior dude who's named Othniel, he comes on the scene, and the Spirit of the Lord comes on him, and he goes into battle, and he risks his life, and he wins this military victory for the people of Israel so that they can have rest. But there's one problem with Othniel, though. He could only temporarily save God's people from their circumstances, he couldn't save them from the real problem, which was them. He couldn't save them from them. And so, centuries after the story, God sends another Yeshua, which is just the Hebrew root behind the proper name Jesus. He sends this new Yeshua, Jesus. And just like Othniel, the Spirit of the Lord comes on to Jesus as he goes about his ministry. But unlike Othniel, Jesus did not just risk his life for his people, but he gave his life for his people. And unlike Othniel, Jesus didn't just come to save his people from their circumstances, but to actually save them from them. How does this work, though? Well, uh, this past weekend, my wife and I finally got around to watching the movie Taken, which I know some of you have been angry at me for not having seen it yet. But if, if you're familiar, if you're, if you're not, you know it's, it's basically about the story of this uh, uh, like ex-CIA spy Agent dude, and he's got a daughter who goes off to Europe, who gets taken and uh, brought into the sex slave industry. And so, the father, being compelled by the love for his child, he goes over to Europe and uh, he basically risks his life time and time again. He infiltrates the sex uh, slave industry, kills like a fourth of Europe in the process. (laughs) And he finally catches up with his daughter. And if you remember that final scene when he finally catches up with her, he's killed everybody, and when she sees him, she says, you came for me. You came for me, you, you risked it all. You, you, you fought, you risked your life, you gave up so much, you came for me. And then, there's really only like three more minutes after that scene of the movie left, which I found, terribly anticlimactic. I know some of you probably hate me, but, but what happened was the very next scene, if you remember, they're in the airport and she you know, is running back to her mom and uh, she embraces her mom and then goes to live with her, her mom. They're separated. And, and all the Liam Neeson character gets is really just like a thank you. Like a thank you for doing that. And you're just like, what? <laughs> his life, he's killing everybody, he's taking bullets and he just gets a thank you. And that's kind of how the movie ends. I mean, there's one more scene but it's kind of stupid anyway. I like the movie overall, but as a viewer, the amount of gratitude that he received in light of what he did was totally unbalanced. So how can you change? The way, the key to change is when you behold the person in the work of Jesus. When you see that he came for you That he infiltrated a a dark and a very scary place. that, That he didn't just risk his life, but he actually lost his life in the line of battle, in the line of duty. He lost his life for you. And when you see that, if your heart is moved by that, more than just saying thank you, but when you're actually transformed and melted and now you say, okay, what you have done for me radically changes everything about me now. I have to live every step of the way in complete gratitude and worship and adoration and joy for what you have done for me. When you see that, that is what begins to activate the heart. That's what begins to transform you from the inside out. And your behavior begins to change as well. But what does that mean? What does that require from you? That means that you have to start looking for the solution to your problems outside of yourself. The solution to your problems comes from outside of yourself. Have you started looking for the solution to your problems outside of yourself? Or are you still looking in here and saying, okay, I'm going to try harder, I'm going to do better, I'm going to fix this, I can fix this. As long as that's you, you won't change. And even if you say, I'm going to try harder, I'm going to be more disciplined, I'm going to have more rules in place, more resolutions, all of that is great, but that alone will not change you. Because you can't change you. You have to have someone from outside of you come in and save you. You know, um, uh, if you want to experience change, all you need is nothing. All you need is nothing. But the problem is, is that not a lot of us have that, because we want to come to God with our resumes, with uh, our case for why He should bless us, our, our, our rationale for, hey, I've had, a, I've had a really crummy life. I you know I, des- I deserve a break. As long as that is you coming to Him with something, it, it, it won't work. You have to come with him with nothing. There's this great hymn uh, that we sing here sometimes at RUF called Rock of Ages. And it says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Is that you? Is that you coming to him with nothing, simply to the cross, clinging to that? If that is you, that's great. If that's not you, consider it an invitation tonight. Take another look at the person of Jesus and what he has done. Let's pray. Father, I would ask that you would give us um, the grace to see and to behold the beauty of your Son, who has come, who has risked his life, and who has given his life for people like us who constantly forget you, who constantly rebel against you, who constantly puff ourselves up with pride and come before you with cases and the reasons why you should bless us. And Father, I pray that you would give us a humility and a brokenness to come before you with nothing and therefore to get everything. Would you do that in Jesus' name? Amen.